Well, it was shaping up to be an absolute catastrophe, a disaster in the making. Not at all the joyous experience that we were sort of anticipating. We arrived in Tennessee for me to go uh, to, to school there. And uh, one of the first orders of business, of course, is to find a place to stay. And so we got in contact with the school. We were there and they said, okay, talk to this guy. So we meet this guy who's going to try and help us find a place to live. And he said, okay, well, I've got a couple of ideas here. Um, let me think. Okay, the first one, yeah, it's just down in the holler. I got to check, though, because uh, just recently the, the house got infested with snakes and so we've got to make sure that's cleaned up so he phones them yeah I know they've still got a snake problem there oh he says you know what we've got a place coming open on our campus the VIP apartments he says but I got to tell you that the people that were in there before you they weren't very clean and so we've got to make sure the cockroaches are out of there first Sheena thought cockroaches were better than snakes and so he took that place these kind of minor inconveniences, you know, you sort of expect that sort of stuff when you go to a developing nation. <laughs> so that didn't bother us. It was actually when we got moved in that we realized that the catastrophe was at hand. The first thing is we realized is that we forgot our electric kettle, and they don't have those down in Tennessee. And then I found out why they don't have those in Tennessee, because we went and we ordered and bought our first pile of tea. And we brewed it up, and it was the grossest thing you ever tasted. What the Sam is this? And then I find out, well, the reason it's like that is because you blend tea differently and all they drink down there is iced tea. They don't drink proper tea. Let me tell you, there was no joy in Mudville. <laughs> How in the world was I going to do graduate studies I couldn't have a proper cup of tea? Disaster. We had to send an emergency ration from Sheena's mom up in Canada to send her some tea so I could begin school. You know, I mean, it is just really, really hard to be filled with joy when things aren't going right, when expectations are not met, when things you're used to get disrupted and upside down and you're not sure how in the world are we going to carry on with this whole thing. Now, here's the thing. This, we're starting a new theme. The last time we had grow up and make a difference. And so, and so as we prayed this through and thought this through and worked it through, we just really sensed that, that God's theme for the Grand Prairie Church Christ over this next ministry year is take joy. Take joy, as in take joy from God, receive it from him, and also take joy to other people, okay? And so if we're going to talk about joy, automatically, what book leaps to mind of the Bible? Philippians, right? This is the book that's sort of known as the book of joy. But here's the thing. As I dove into the initial studies of, on this book, I realized why it is that Paul writes so much about joy in Philippians, is because they were experiencing a significant deficit in joy. That's why Paul has to say, hey, listen, I'm not tired. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice again. It doesn't tire me to write the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's because they needed a big shot of joy in their life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, and then we'll dive in. Okay, because background, I know at first it's kind of seems like, Jones, who cares? We didn't join you in Tennessee in school. We, but it, the background to a book in the church is important because, because it, it sort of um, infuses the things that he says. Okay, so quick real thing on Philippians. Okay, first thing about Philippians is that, a little bit of history, is that it was established about 350 years before Jesus by King Philip. King Philip was Alexander the Great's dad. You, you heard of Alexander the Great? 
Man, this is, who are the teachers here that these guys don't know about Alexander the Great? You know Alexander the Great? Holy jumping. Wow. Alexander the Great, like he conquered the world, took Greek culture all over. That's amazing. Anyhow, okay. Anyway, his dad established Philippi. And uh, as time went on, here's the next important thing about Philippi. And this is really, really important. It was a, a city in sort of northern Greece or Macedonia, but it was a Roman city, okay? It had special privileges because it played some particular roles in the Roman Civil War, so you don't care about that, but, but it was a Roman citizen, and what it was like is kind of like uh, Italian soil right in the middle of Greece. It's sort of like our, uh, our um, embassies, you know where embassies is like having Canada and all these different countries and the different rules apply? This was Philippi. It was a Roman citizen, and the people who were into Philippi and born in Philippi, they could be Roman citizens. That's going to be really, really important as we go through the book, okay? So it was a Roman city. Now, part of the, uh, the response to Rome giving them this big privilege is that in Philippi there were two temples to what's called the imperial cult. And what that fancy means, they thought that whoever the Caesars were, whoever the, the emperors were, that they, if they died, were deified. They were demigods. They were part God, part not. And as a matter of fact, in Philippi, they went an extra step. And it was not just the emperor, but his wife and his family. They also got to be seen as gods, okay? So this is the religious background of Philippi, is that they worshipped the, the emperor as, as God, okay? Now... In Acts chapter 16, if you want to turn to that, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time, but if you ever want to dive into how the church in Philippi got started, it's all there in Acts chapter 15. What happened was Paul and Timothy and a few people, they got a vision to come on over to Macedonia. They went over there. They ran into a woman by the name of Lydia. And so this is the church that was established by Paul and Timothy and some women. And they began the church there. And then it didn't take Paul very long before he got into trouble. He's going around sharing the gospel and he encounters this girl who was possessed by a demon and this this demon possessed girl was earning money for her owner she was a slave girl and Paul gets kind of fed up with the falling around so he casts this demon out and then the people they see that the way of making cash off this slave is gone so they drag Paul before the magistrates magistrates convict him they strip him naked to shame him they lay a beating on him and then they throw him in jail remember this story and so what happens in the middle of the night is in the deepest jail and there's an earthquake and all the shackles fall off him. The jailer freaks out because he thinks the prisoners are all going to be gone and that would mean that he'd be killed. But Paul said, hey, relax, we're all right here. No problem. You know, they fix them all up and stuff. The jailer becomes a follower of Jesus. And then the word comes down from the magistrates. Okay, this guy's suffered enough. You can let him go. And Paul says, not a chance. We don't just walk out of the city now. We are Roman citizens and you beat us and stripped us naked and shamed us and threw us in jail without a trial. You don't get to do that to Roman citizens. And so the message goes back to the magistrates. Hey, we didn't realize this guy, he's a Roman citizen. They kind of freak out. They come down, their hands and knees, they beg Paul, let us go. And they escort him out of the city and Paul leaves behind the church in Philippi. By the time we get the letter to Philippians, there's probably a little church there of about 50 to 100 people. Okay, that's kind of where you go. Do you ever wonder how these scholars come up with these names like there was 50 to 100 people in the church? I wondered that too. I tried to trace it, but I have no idea. 
But they're smarter than me, so okay, I guess there's 50 to 100 people. But the idea being it's, it's kind of a small little church that's not too old, okay? So that's kind of what is going on. Now, this church was experiencing some trouble, okay? Some trouble had come about. They were a poor church. They were, they were impoverished. They were financially impoverished and poor. And yet they had this incredible generous heart. And so when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians there about the Macedonian churches, you know, they looked after us and out of their extreme poverty, they were able to give to this offering I'm taking for the Jews. That's the church in Philippi. Okay, so they were very poor, and yet they had this generous heart. They continue to be generous, because the reason that Paul, in, in some ways, is writing this letter to, to Philippi, in part, is to say thanks, because they sent one of their guys, Epaphroditus, up with money and for, for Paul to buy food. See, maybe you don't know this. I always forget. But when the Romans threw you in jail, it's not like you got three squares a day. You were dependent upon friends and family to bring you food. Otherwise, too bad for you, buddy. You don't have enough friends. You deserve to die. And so, and so this Philippian church, out of its poverty, once again, they'd helped Paul before. And once again, they'd sent up a bunch of money to give Paul so he could buy food while he was a prisoner of Rome. And so, and so they, were, they, were, they were poor, but they were generous. But the truth is, they were now becoming a bit anxious. By the time we get to chapter 4, you'll see, they weren't sure that they were going to have money to buy food to eat. They weren't sure that God's provision was going to carry them on. They were poor, and it's like things are getting kind of tense. Oh, our bank accounts are empty, and it's, it's, it's rough. Now, so they had this economic pressure, which was dragging them down, causing them to doubt. Second, they had some theological pressure from the outside. And it sort of came from two sides, okay? Uh, there's big debates on it, but basically most scholars say, ah, there's two problems. Number one is they had pressure from the imperial courts. Remember this whole thing? Now, you might think, well, that's bad. You know, they didn't like us as Christians. They give us a kick every once in a while. Worse than that. You see, what you need to understand is a couple of things. Uh, in that day and age, politics and religion were the same thing. Okay? It was governed, they were, they were wrapped in together. We kind of like the idea of separation of church and state, and that's not then, they're all together. And here's the deal. Because it was political, everyone that was a tradesperson, you belonged to a guild, okay? You know, the Tanner's Guild, the Silversmith's Guild, the whatever guild, this guild, that guild, whatever guild. And those guilds, they worshipped gods. And if you were not willing to worship the god of that guild, you're kicked out of the guild. You get kicked out of the guild, you don't work. You don't work, you don't get paid. You don't get paid, you don't eat. Okay? So on one side, they had this pressure from the imperial court of, the, you know, Caesar is God, we're going to worship him. Or you're not going to give you a pinch of salt. Okay, then forget it, you're fired. Okay? So they had that. On the other side, they had Judaizers, kind of like in Galatians that we talked about. And these were people that said, look, we've, if you're going to follow God, you've got to obey the law. Uh, primarily, you've got to get circumcised, for which people were understandably resistant. <laughs> So you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to obey. And so here's this little church. And so we're not sure if it was the pressure from the Jews or if they were followers of Jesus that said you have to keep the law. Not really sure. But they, they sort of had these two things going on. Now, what's interesting is that Paul, a lot of times you can really tell it's up front. This is the problem that this church is facing. In Philippians, it's not so much. Paul doesn't say so much about these uh, theologically opposed people. But when he does say it, it's pretty nasty stuff. Oh, yeah? You want to circumcise? How about you go the whole way? Like, it's nasty stuff. We'll get to that. So that was going on on the outside. Then they had internal pressure. And this really is the saddest part. 
But as you read between the lines and as we go through, you'll see that there's division in the church. Somehow some prideful self-seeking had, had got into the church, even amongst the, the leaders of the church. And so there's this, this pride-filled division. I'm better than you, and these are my people, and they're your people, and all this kind of stuff. And, and we'll see how that kind of plays out a little bit. And then, lastly, all of this pressure. Now they were worried about Paul. Because Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And he'd been in prison. And they weren't sure what was going to go on and what was happening. And in spite of Paul being faithful, in spite of Paul serving the gospel, in spite of all uh, people praying for Paul and so on, he was like facing death. He was in change. And then on top of that, with this Epaphroditus that they sent with the money, he got so sick on the journey that they thought he was going to die. And Paul says, yeah, you're right. He got so sick. He almost died. But God was merciful to him. And so they're like, we're not sure this Jesus thing's working out. I mean, we've been faithful and we pray and even the Apostle Paul, he prays and he's faithful and he's doing this thing and Epaphrodites is taking this money and every time we turn around, it's just kind of getting worse around here. How, what are you doing? What are you doing? Have you been in that spot ever? You know, I've been faithful, I prayed, you just do this and this. What are you doing? And the joy had leached out of this church, and so Paul, in his chains, this apostle who's experiencing imprisonment and persecution and enmity, he is going to write to these struggling Christians in this little church, and he's going to talk about the joy which comes in the midst of the despair that makes praying necessary. The joy that comes in the midst of the despair that makes praying necessary. Carl Bartovic, theologian, said a very similar thing about that. I, I just kind of like that because sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need this, this joy that God can give us by the Holy Spirit, which comes in the midst of the despair that makes praying necessary. When things are so bad, it's like, okay, I give up, I'm going to pray. And it's the joy that comes when, when we're sort of in that, that bottom spot. All right, so let me do the introduction here, and he's going to outline what he's going to flesh out in the next of the time. Okay, so let's read it here. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to take a look at the first 11 verses, which have it in. So is it typed in here? Let's see if we can all read it on the screen. Nope? Yeah, okay, let's go. Next slide. There we go, thank you. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Together with the overseers or elders, okay, that's shepherds. This word for overseer, the word we get bishop from. To the overseers or the elders and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray. Always is a big thing. All of you and always is a big, big theme as you go through these verses. I always pray with joy because why? Of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, being sure of this, finding strength in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus comes back. It's right for me 
to feel this way about you, all of you, uh, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you uh, with the affection, with the love of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be able and pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Now, buried in here, I think, are three secrets to finding this joy that comes in the midst of misery that causes us, drives us to prayer. And he's just going to sort of outline it, and then as we go through the next uh, few months, we'll, we'll get fresh. He's going to, three issues, three things in which uh, joy can come in the midst of these struggles. We're going to talk about who we are, what we're doing, and what's happening to us. Who we are, what we're doing, what's happening to us. And, and Paul's going to outline for us, in the midst of stuff, if we can keep these things in our mind and our heart, it's going to enable joy to kind of come about. So let's begin with who we are. Well, the first thing that Paul says, and here's what you need to understand. We are all slaves of Christ Jesus. We're slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't like the sound of that, but I'll tell you what, the Philippians would like it even less. Because they lived in a shame and honor culture with all of, you know, patrons and everyone's big pecking order and all of these things. And the slaves were the lowest of the low. And here they were, these Philippians who were so proud that they belonged to Philippi. They were so proud that they were Roman citizens, even above all these other Greek and Macedonian people. They were so proud. And Paul says, listen, you've got the struggle of division within your body. You know why? It's because you've forgotten your identity. Because your identity is that you are a slave of Christ Jesus. That is your focus. Is not to be on yourselves, but it's to be on the master, not yourself. I mean, that's what a slave does, right? I mean, you don't get any rights, you don't get any opinions, you don't get whatever. All you care about and all that you're allowed to care for is what does the master say? And he said, you're a slave of Christ Jesus. But don't take it too hard because if we get into chapter 2, there's that famous uh, portion of scripture about Jesus and Jesus is defined there as a, as a slave. He took him in flesh, even man as a man, even as a slave. And we're going to be like him. You see, here's, listen, you guys, listen. This is so important. One of the things that we forget that the Philippians have forgotten is that when we come to faith in Jesus, yes, he gives us eternal life. But here's the big issue. He transforms our identity. He transforms our identity. I, I can't, in this day and age where our identity is, 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 is so questioned and so up in the eye, I mean, there's so many different ways in which you can identify yourself as a person, right? You're a conservative, you're a liberal, you're a man, you're a woman, you're, you're straight, you're gay, you're all, whatever all these things are, there's all kinds of ways in which, and what, what we need to understand is this, listen, at the very core of everything else is our identity. And Paul's saying, you can just forget about everything else about how you know, good this is, you know, English, Canadian, whatever. Here's your identity, your core identity. You are a slave of Christ Jesus. 
And everything else that we do and everything else that we are comes out of our identity. So this question of who you are, someone says, who are you? I'll tell you who I am. I am a slave in Christ Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. And out of that, that, that identity, that, that, that transfer, this transformation of identity. As a matter of fact, some guys say the whole book of Philippians, really, it's all about transformation into joy. It's all about transformation of our identity. So the first thing is, is this identity. We are slaves. But of course, it's not always a, a lowly thing to be a slave because in the Old Testament, the people who are called slaves are the followers of God. That's how Israel defined themselves, how the prophets defined themselves. It's kind of the, the same idea. And so, and so it's sort of, in, in some ways, it's a bit of an honor thing to say that, yeah, we belong to God. I mean, if you're going to belong to somebody, who better to belong to than God? Who gives us our purpose, who gives us our, our nutrition, who gives us life, who sustains us, who upholds us, who gives us direction, who protects us and loves us and nurtures us and cares for us. So we are slaves, but thankfully we are slaves of Jesus, the Savior. Second thing about our identity is that we are saints in Christ. Not only are we slaves in Christ or of Christ, we are saints in Christ. Saints, it just is a word that means holy, and, and holy just means set apart. It, it just means that, you know, if you, as you go into this whole thing of our identity, yes, we are slaves in Christ, but we are holy. We are set apart for a particular and a special purpose. We're separated from all of the things that are opposed to God and given over to him as we belong to him and our commitment and focus is in him. And here's the thing. In this whole deal of being saints, holy ones in Christ, what Paul is getting across here is family. It's a bit tricky, but as we go through Philippians, there's this idea that it's, a, it's Paul trying to say, listen, this division that's happening amongst you, it's not right because we are one family. It's a little bit technical. You know, even in our, because it all has to do somewhat with the form of the letter. Okay, so back in the ancient times when I was in elementary school, like in the 60s, we had to learn how to write different letters for different kinds of people. Did you guys, do you still do that? Yeah, you still, like, here's a letter to a friend, and here's a letter to somebody you don't know, and here's a letter to a bit. You guys still teach that kind of stuff, right? And so, same thing in the Greek culture, the same deal. And you can identify what kind of relationship by the form of the letter. There's a bit of a debate. But in Philippians, they pretty much say, you know what, this is a letter, not just of friendship, but it's a letter that one family member would write to another. Because all of us are family in Christ. And we see that. Third thing about who we are that we can find some joy in, and it's a root of joy, is that we are recipients of God's grace and peace. Recipients of God's grace and peace. God forgives us. God loves us. God brings shalom. God begins to put in our life things back together the way that they should be as we follow him and as he flows through us, through Jesus Christ. So that's kind of who we are. We're slaves, 
We're holy people. We are recipients of God's grace and peace. And in those things, if we can get those things straight, and if we can keep in mind those things, then even in the midst of trial and difficulties in our personal lives, we can come back to a sense of joy because those things God are doing and bringing about and saying, this is who you are. In spite of what anybody else may say, in spite of how other people may treat you, this is who you are. All right, second thing, what are we doing? Paul's idea is, listen, if you get an idea not only of who we are, but get straight what it is that we're doing, you can find joy in difficulty. That's how I'm finding joy in the midst of prison, says Paul. We can pray with thanks. Why, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel. The way in which they'd done that is that they'd given Paul money. Frankly, I mean, that's how they participated in, in Paul's ministry. They supplied him with the cash that he needed to get it done. That kept him alive and kept the kingdom work going. You see, what Paul's saying is that, listen, there's joy. When we understand that, that we're slaves of Christ and when we see that our purpose is God's purpose, when we see the kingdom of God advance, even if it advances in difficult times, we can find joy in the midst of that because it is moving forward. We can have a joyful response even to hardship, says Paul, because we see God's work being done. And next week we're going to see how he talks about that being in prison. And then he says, not only that, but here's what we're doing. Verse 7. Verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in change or defending, confirm the gospel. All of you sharing God's grace with me. Now, here's the trick. He's using grace in a different way. Before, when grace and peace to you, that's kind of the general grace of salvation and being a part of the family. In verse 7, he's talking about your call to ministry is a grace from God. It's a grace. It's a grace from God that he has gifted you to carry out particular ministries in the kingdom of God. Some of you are gifted as helpers and some others as teachers and others as youth workers and others in the kitchen and others for teachers and others music. And what Paul is saying is that you need to understand this, that this is God's gift of grace to you to be used for the sake of the kingdom. It's a grace. It's part of God's goodness to you. Not a burden, not a challenge, not a frustration. God's, it's a grace to you that you can be a partner in the advance of my kingdom with me. And so when you're in difficult circumstances and you're tired and you're frustrated and you're thinking, man, why am I even doing this? Then say, I'll tell you why. Because it's a grace to us that God says, here, I'm giving you the gift. I'm giving you this ability. I'm giving you this opportunity. And as you follow it through, you will experience the joy of the Lord. Third thing is what's happening. So who we are, what are we doing? He says, and the third thing that we can look to to find joy when things are rough, when things are tough, the third thing we can look at is what's happening. And the first thing he says is that God is perfecting you. God is perfecting you. That's verse six. Verse six is, is kind of the center of this whole this whole. A uh, little section of scripture. And some guys, um, Tom Wright said, it's the center and the driving force of the entire book. Being confident of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion or perfection until the day that Christ returns. God is at work in your lives to bring about your completion, your perfection, to bring about you to the point where you are fulfilling the point of your existence. 
So what is the completion? Well, as you go through Philippians, you'll see that what God's work at is making you look more like Jesus, making us be more like Jesus. And God uses tough times and good times and in-between times to, to say, okay, here's what's going to happen. In the midst of this trial, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this stress, I'm going to make you more like Jesus. This pressure that's coming on you, I'm going to do things in your life and teach things in your life that you would not experience and understand about Jesus unless you were going through it. And so I'm going to use this time to bring you to perfection. And it's tough and it's hard. But when the process is done, you're going to be more filled with grace, more filled with love, more filled with peace, more filled with kindness, more filled with compassion, more filled with compassion, more filled with joy. I'm going to make you like Jesus. And he's going to say in chapter 2, have this mind within you that is in Christ Jesus. Because that's the goal and the end. You're going to get to the point in the day of Christ when you will fulfill the whole purpose of your life. Lynn Kohick, in her, in her lecture, I was listening to her on this passage, she said, you know, the idea of perfection here is the idea of, of fulfilling your purpose with, with great joy, and there's joy in that. She said, I want you to think about a light bulb. A light bulb becomes perfect when electricity passes through it and it sheds light. That's when it's perfect. That's what God is doing. He's bringing that about in your life. Second thing that he is doing what's happening is that we are maturing in love. Verse 9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, love in the biblical sense and in God's way, it's a combination of heart and mind. And it's so important that we get this together because it's this idea of love that is intelligent and perceptive, that we begin to see needs with Jesus' eyes. And not only do we see the needs with Jesus' eyes, but we've got the wisdom and the knowledge to know how to meet that need in the wise way that God would meet it, in the way of God's character would meet it. It's mature love that reflects God's character. You see, mature love, I think, prevents two problems at least and gives two good results. Two problems it prevents and two goods it brings about. The first thing, what does it prevent? Mature love prevents sentimentality. You know what sentimentality is? Sentimentality is this idea of just kind of having a warm feeling that happens in a heart that just hugs everything and everyone, like everything's okay, like you're okay, I'm okay, this is okay, that's okay, without thinking and understanding that true love has sometimes truth to speak into it. And sometimes that truth that needs to be spoken and that truth that needs to be acted out is hard to say and hard to do and hard to take. But it's not sentimentality. It's not just, oh, isn't that cute, isn't that nice that they're happy and all those things going along. And true mature love with the knowledge of God that he talks about understands that, hey, it's not sentimentality, it's love. And love has to be combined with truth. But the other side is this. The second evil that mature love prevents is judgmentalism and legalism. Because true love that's mature isn't just thinking that, you know, this truth is a hammer to be used to pound other people down into mush and nothing. You know, true love also has along with it grace. It's mature love. It's not just, you know, just hammering on somebody and saying, well, you know, that's the real thing. No, it isn't. See, mature love does away with sentimentality on the one side and judgmentalism on the other side and begins to live out and speak out and practice the character of God in loving and gracious ways. 
And then he says it leads to two things. Verses 10 and 11. This mature love will lead to two things in your life and in your family and in your workplace and in the church and everywhere. The first thing is it gives good godly morality. You see what he says there? That's what verse 10 says. Why? Why is it this mature love? So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It takes a mature love to have the moral sense of God's character. When in a day and age where everything is turned to gray, well, I know that this is wrong, but in this case, that. So I know what this is, we should do this, but in this case, this. No, no, no. What he's saying is that true love gives us this real sense of true morality, of what is blameless and what is pure and what is sincere. And the second thing that true love gives is the fruit of righteousness. He's talking there about relationships, that we will be in right relationship with God and with each other. And so he said, listen, Philippians, you're going through a rough time. You're under all kinds of pressure. But we're going to flesh out for you these three things that if you'll just get this right in your heart and in your life, you're beginning to have the foundation of joy. If you will understand who it is that we are. And if you will understand that you are being matured into that person, then the third thing is going to happen with true love. God will be praised and glorified in your life because of your joy and in the lives of other people. You know, there's so many joy stealers in life, aren't there? Economic pressure. Here come the interest rates and our variable mortgages. Economic pressure. How are we going to do it? Man, we were tight before. How are we going to get out? Political and religious tensions that happen, that we've just gone through a terrible season of, of tensions and difficulty. There's relational conflicts that come into our lives, into, in our families and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and, and in society. There's this relational conflict. And, and sometimes... Like the Philippians, when we looked at it from the wrong angle, we kind of think, man, this faith thing is compounding the trouble. It's compounding the problem. Does this Jesus thing even work? There's all kinds of joy stealers. And Paul, from his prison cell in change, is going to take this stuff on. And he's going to say, listen, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And, and here's how it is that, that you're going to be rejoicing because you're going to be transformed in who you are and you're going to see things in a different way. And from that, you'll have the joy that comes from the despair that drives us to prayer. So this week, this is just kind of the outline. He's going to flesh all this stuff out. But as you think about joy and as you find circumstances in which you think, boy, you know, I'm kind of losing my joy in this. Just, just think for a few minutes and pray through a little bit. Who am I? Really, who am I? What's the core of my being? I define myself as this and this and this and this and this and this and this, but, but now, you know, I'm getting divorced or I'm not, I lost my job or all of these different things that we find our identity in. It feels like our joy is ebbing away. Who am I? That nobody can take away because it's true of me in Christ. And what am I doing Really and truly, what is the ultimate purpose that God put me on earth to do? 
And how is this circumstance that I'm involved in now, how, how, how can that be used to advance what I'm really here to do, give glory to God and advance the kingdom? And what's happening? How is God going to use this time of trial and difficulty and heartache and questioning? How is God using that to transform me into the image of Christ? and enable me to be a person who practices mature love. And I think if we can discipline ourselves to just sort of ground ourselves again in these truths, the foundation of joy in the midst of trouble can be reestablished in our life. Almighty God, uh, you don't promise us (laughs) rainbows and butterflies all the days of our life. In fact, Jesus, you said in this world you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Be of a sense of joy because I've overcome the world. And Lord, what we have the ability to do in you is to look past the circumstances and look look to the ultimate, to look to you. And in you, remember who we are. Remember what we committed our ultimate purpose to be when we said yes to you, Jesus. And to remember that you are at work. And we can be confident in this. We can be sure in this. We can count on the reality that the good work you began in us of of transforming us into the image of Christ, that that good work will be brought to completion And in that we find great joy. We pray through Christ. Amen.